Well, I invite you to join me here in Romans 8, if you are not there already. Romans chapter 8. A much beloved chapter of the Bible. One of the probably best known chapters in the Bible. It's a, it's a chapter that I personally return to often. I find myself coming back to this chapter to remind myself of these promises. Romans chapter 8. Specifically, we'll be looking at this evening verses 26 to 39. 26 to 39. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to gather here this evening to lift your name high, to sing your praises with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Fellow heirs, those who are redeemed, who know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are worthy. You are worthy of our song. You're worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our lives. Heavenly Father, I pray that our devotion would not just be a devotion that is all focused on a Sunday morning and a Sunday night, but that the things that we confess even as we gather here are truths that would impact every day of our lives, every decision that we make. For you are just as worthy as we walk out these doors and go about our normal life as you are in here. I pray that we would be a people who take the good news of the gospel to the world around us. That we would be a people ever aware of those around us who are dying and going to hell today. Even as we hold the good news too scared to speak up. Heavenly Father, give us boldness. Give us boldness to rejoice in our living Savior day in and day out. To be a light to a dying world. And Heavenly Father, even as we look at this passage, remind us of the guarantee of our hope. And may that Spur us on all the more to praise your name. I pray that even in this hour, that you would work in our hearts and our lives through the word. That your spirit would take these truths, that you would challenge us. That you would point out where we are weak. That you would push on those areas that we need to change. Open our eyes to our sin. Convict us. And help us to see the power to change in Christ alone. Give us hope. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As I mentioned, I know it's not the first of the month, but I wanted to uh, jump back into our series for the year. I had a couple of options. We could have started uh, a new series on Sunday night because we finished our Sunday night series that we were going through the book of Jude, we finished that a few weeks ago. So we could have started that tonight, but then we would have had to wait another, we had to take a week off next week to return to this. 
And so I thought, well, it's better to go ahead and do this now and then next week to just jump in and keep going with it. And so that's the decision that we made. So we are continuing our series of our theme for the year this evening. Our theme for the year is sing a new song. Sing a new song. This evening as we come to this passage, we see a charge to sing with confidence. You may remember a few months ago as I introduced our theme, we walked through several different psalms. We started in Psalm 33, verses 1 to 6. We saw Psalm 40, verses 1 to 3, Psalm 96, 1, Psalm 98, 1, Psalm 144, 9, Psalm 149, 1. And these are all of the psalms that call us to sing a new song. So we took the time to, to work through those and see what, is that, what does it mean to sing a new song? Does it just mean that we gather here and each week we should be singing a new song? Maybe we should be paying Todd a little bit so that he can write us a new song to sing each week. Maybe he can work together with Jim and they can put together something for us. Each week, something new to sing. I think as you work through the Psalms, you see that it's not, the idea is not just a song. It is not limited to praising God in song. But the idea includes that, but it's much broader than that. It means to praise God with all of your life. That word song, it's the idea of worship. Worship God in song and in life. These new truths, this new song is the theme of our new life in Christ. You see that, for instance, in Psalm 98.1a, our verse of the year that we've repeated Several times, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Why? For he has done marvelous things. Because he is worthy. Look who he is. Look who, what he has done and respond. In fact, you may have, if you're paying attention, you may have noticed that all of the songs that we sang tonight, every single one of them states a truth and then calls for a response. I have been redeemed. I have been saved. Therefore what? I will glory in his name. Praise him. Praise him. Why? Because of his excellent greatness. It deserves to be told. Why is it that we long for a thousand tongues to sing the praise of our great Redeemer? Because of the glories of his name, because of the triumphs of his grace. These are truths that call for a response. And that's kind of the idea that we're going with, with a new song. It is a, a new song that impacts all of life. Our new song is the theme of our new lives in Christ. So with that in mind... After we were in those Psalms last, a few weeks ago, we were actually in Romans 8, 18 to 25. And you may remember in those verses, we looked at the fact that we sing with a resurrection hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has an impact on our lives. It has a meaning to how we live, to how we speak, to what we do, to how we treat others. Sing with resurrection hope. 
It even has a meaning, it gives meaning to how we go through trials and tribulations. As verse 18 tells us, the sufferings of this present time, they are real, but they are not worth being compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You will be glorified, and that is ten times better. It is worth every trial that you go through. God is at work in you. And so that resurrection hope that we do, it gives purpose, it gives meaning to those trials. So we sing, we live with resurrection hope. Hope of future glory. And yet at the same time, we we recognize that we are still here waiting, are we not? We're still waiting for our hope to be realized. We find ourselves in the trenches, often going through suffering and pain, the disappointment of life. And as we wait in faith with expectation, it's easy to become distracted and to lose our perspective. It is so easy to forget that these deep doctrines of the Word of God have meaning to life. It is so easy for us to forget that we are living with resurrection hope. In fact, keeping with the theme of singing, So often we allow the noise from the world around us to distract us from the sweet chorus of hope and salvation that is ours in Christ. From our limited perspective, there is endless evidence that our hope in Christ is in jeopardy. Day in and day out, there are things that pop up that would threaten us. Evidence from our perspective that seems to suggest that maybe God is not in control. Maybe my hope is not as sure as I thought it was. And everything from simple annoyances. I find myself getting annoyed very easy. It's very easy to get me annoyed. To impatience that we saw this morning. From simple annoyances to impatience to very real and painful suffering. It is a temptation to throw up our hands and worry-fueled frustration. Where are you, God? Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. God has not abandoned you. He knows exactly what he is doing and every twist and turn of your life has purpose. Your sovereign God is working in you to bring you to glory, as we saw in verses 18 to 25. In fact, that's the direction that the author, the author, I'm so used to saying the author of Hebrews, that's the direction that Paul, the author of Romans, takes us this evening. As he comes out of verses 18 to 25, and you come to verse 26, the end of this chapter is filled with hope. It is filled with hope. It gives you confidence. Not only is your hope not in jeopardy, Paul tells us here, but everything, but in everything, God is at work for your good and his glory. This passage is a call to surrender your sin-skewed perspective and to trust in the God who helps you, to praise the God who saves you, and to persevere through the God who keeps you. 
First thing we see is a, is a, a call to trust in the God who helps you. Trust in the God who helps you. And we start here by recognizing our weakness in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. Why? For we don't know what we should pray for as we ought. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. We are weak. If you're honest with yourself, you probably don't need me to tell you that. You know your weaknesses. You know just how incredibly weak you are. In fact, even in the context, going back to verse 18, we've already acknowledged that we live in a sin-cursed world and that life is hard and suffering is a reality. And yet, in spite of this reality, in spite of your weakness, in spite of of the sin-cursed world that you live in, in all of your failings, glory is coming. Glory is coming. Just wait. And yet, as you come to this verse, verse 26, not only is glory coming, not only is it a call to wait, but it is encouragement that as you wait, you have help. You're not left alone in your suffering. Even in weakness, you have help. God did not just save you and then say, all right, now if you can just hold on for the 70, 80, 90 years of life that I've called you to, if you can just hold on, then at the end, I will save you. Then at the end, I will glorify you. I will bring it all together. But, but you just got to hold on. You got to keep it together. No, he gives us help in our weaknesses. Because we would not be able to keep it together, would we? He gives us help. Notice that Romans 8.26 begins with the word likewise. It's a word that connects this verse, with this verse and the following verses back to Paul's previous point. Yes, you are weak. Yes, you live in a sin-cursed world, but you have hope in your weakness. Glory is coming. And not only do you have hope in your weakness, but now we see likewise that you have help in your weakness. You have hope in your weakness, and you have help in your weakness. That's not the only connection either. But if you jump to the end of verse 26, you see that word, Groanings. How does, how does this Holy Spirit help us? We don't know, but we should pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Groanings. That's a word that's already shown up in this passage. Verse 22. whole of creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves. You see, we are groaning under the weight of expectation, longing for this glory that has been promised to us. We want to be made new, do we not? We want to take hold of this glorification that has been promised to us in Christ. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And we groan under that weight in this sin-cursed world. But we are not alone in our groaning. The Spirit himself is groaning. He groans for us on our behalf. We groan to be glorified, to take hold of that promise. He groans on our behalf to make us glorified. 
You see, his groaning, as we see in verse 26, is, is, is on our behalf in prayer. Because we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know what we really need. We are weak. We can't save ourselves. And we cannot, having been saved, now bring ourselves to glorification. We don't even know the right things to ask for in prayer. We don't even know the right things to ask for in prayer. The times that we actually take the time to pray. We don't know what we need. We don't know how to properly interpret our circumstances. My son Judah is sick today. And uh, he's at home. We had to give him some medicine last night. One of those little syringes. You get the medicine, you put it in his mouth and squeeze it right in. He actually took it really well last night. But, but typically, my kids hate medicine. Specifically, Theodore. Theodore, I've never seen someone fight so hard against medicine. He hates it. In fact, I remember vividly one time when he was sick, he had a high fever, we had gone to the doctor, we had a prescription, we had medicine, we brought it home, and we needed to get it in his little body, but he would not let us. He was kicking and screaming. I mean, there is no stubbornness like the stubbornness of a three-year-old who does not want to take his medicine. It got to the point where I had to forcefully hold him down against his will. Well, Krista gave him the medicine. See, we weren't trying to hurt him. We were trying to help him. This was something that he needed, but he didn't understand that. From his limited perspective, his little three-year-old mind, he didn't understand that. In fact, if left to make his own decisions, he would ignore the very thing that his body needed desperately. And I think we are a lot more like a little three-year-old boy fighting against taking our medicine than we would like to admit. We just simply do not know what we need. We don't understand it. We have no idea what is good for us. We don't see the big picture. We are unable to understand how God can leave us here, how he can allow us to suffer, and how he can still say that he is good. And all the while, we fail to see that it is through suffering that God is accomplishing his purpose in us. So often, suffering is not punishment. It is God accomplishing his purpose in you. Is that not what we saw this morning, even with the idea of patience? Wait patiently. God is working for your good. I think another illustration that helps us to understand this, when I was in high school, my dad was my basketball coach. And overall, it was, a, it was a good experience. But I remember one game in particular where I got really mad at my dad. It was, uh, it was a game where I was getting frustrated with the refs. And um, you may not believe this, but at one time I was a very competitive person. And uh, I, was getting, I was getting mad at the refs. And I was getting frustrated. And, and finally there was a call that I didn't agree with. And I, I jumped up and I screamed out, Open your eyes! Without pause, the referee gave me a technical foul. First one, only one I ever got. 
There's a reason why I was the only one I ever got. Because when that happened, my dad pulled me from the game. He sat me on the bench, and he did not let me go back into that game. You see, I was, I was a starter. I was not you know, the best basketball player in the world, but I'm, I'm tall. I'm somewhat athletic. I was, I was a starter. I was able to get rebounds. And I think we ended up losing that game. And, and I got so frustrated at my dad. How can you do that? It wasn't my fault. It was the ref's fault. And now the whole team's going to lose because you're doing this to me. In my immaturity and my anger, I didn't recognize that my dad sat me on that bench, not because he was mad at me, but it was because he loved me. He was more concerned with teaching me character than with winning a basketball game. You see, at that time, in that moment, through the, through the fog of my frustration, I wasn't able to see that. But looking back with the perspective of time and age, I see that that lesson was valuable, and I am thankful for it. And so often, is that not how life works? We look back later and we see, wow, God is good. God is faithful. He did know what he was doing. We don't know what we truly need. We don't even know what to really pray for. Our prayers are informed by our limited perspective and our sinful desires. But the Spirit's groanings for us are informed by God's perfect will. He makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit is at work for our benefit. He takes our ill-informed prayers and he conforms them into what they need to be. He prays not according to our fleshly desires, but according to our new nature needs. He is the one who understands where God is taking you, what God is doing in the present, and everything along the way that God is going to do to get you there. We don't understand that. Notice that God here is described as the one who searches hearts. That's a familiar phrase used throughout Scripture to describe God and has the idea of, of He is the one who, who really deeply knows you. God knows your heart and your, your inmost being. He knows you. He knows what is best for you. He knows and he is at work to that end. And in his wisdom, he has given you his spirit, his spirit who indwells and helps you by interceding for you according to God's will. You have a God who knows you. You have a spirit who indwells you. And that spirit knows God, and that God knows that spirit, and they have the same will because they are God. And they are at work in you and for you. And so it's into this context now that we come to Romans 8.28. A well-known, a beloved verse. An encouraging promise that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. But notice as we turn here that, that Romans 8.28 is not a general promise that all things always work together for good for all people. Romans 8.28 is a specific 
promise. And there's two questions here that I think we need to ask and to answer that help us to fully grasp the significance of this verse. And the first question is this. Who is this promise for? If this is not just a general promise that all things will always work together for all people, then who is the promise for? Well, you'll notice Romans 8.28. It's a promise to those who love God. It's a promise to those who are called according to his purpose. Essentially, the promise is for those who are the redeemed, those who are in Christ. It is for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, as we saw in the first 11 verses of Romans 8. It is a promise to those who have been adopted, who call the Father, Abba, Father, who are heirs of Christ, heirs of God, heirs even with Christ. This is a promise to believers. If you are in Christ, this promise is for you, that God will work all things together for you, for your good. But that brings us to our second question. What, what is the good of Romans 8.28? Because Theodore thought that he knew what was good for him. He thought it was not good for him to take that medicine. So who decides what is good for me? What is this good? I think we have to understand Romans 8.28 in the context of Romans 8.18. The good of Romans 8.28 is not what I desire, It is not what I deem to be good. It is what God deems to be good for me. It is the glory, the glorification that God has promised for me and that he is preparing me for. In essence, my good in this life is my sanctification, working up to my glorification and glory. Everything that God does for you is for your good in that it is conforming you to the image of Christ. My good is God's purpose. So then, if my good is God's purpose, God's will for me, then Romans 8.28, properly understood, is the positive answer to the Spirit's groanings in Romans 8.26-27. The Spirit who is praying the things that I would pray if I really understood the things that I need to pray. The Spirit that is praying for me according to God's will. Well, then Romans 8.28 is the answer to those prayers. That all things will work together for my good, my glorification, ultimately. Really, Romans 8.28 is a promise that God will complete in you what he has begun, as Philippians 1.6 tells us. And so, brothers and sisters, in light of these verses, rejoice. Rejoice in prosperity and rejoice in trial. Because in everything that you face, God is at work in you. Don't let disappointment in the circumstances of your life, don't let frustration in your relationships, don't let anything like that cause you to question or to doubt the goodness of your God. But be filled with hope, driven to a stronger faith, recognizing that even in the darkest valley, God is working for your good. You may not understand in the moment what he is doing. But you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that it is ultimately for your good. In sickness, God is good. And he is still at work. In loss, 
God is good. And he is still at work. He has not abandoned you. And so trust him. Trust him. He has given you all that, he need, that you need. And he is, in, in, he is at work in you for your good. So trust in the God who helps you. Praise the God who saves you. I know that took us a long time to get through point one. That's my longest point, so don't be looking at the clock now and worried. Praise the God who saved you, verses 29 to 30. Again, these are well-known verses. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Paul here is moving forward, and he's focusing on that, that last phrase there in Romans 8.28. Those who are called according to his purpose. What does that mean? What does it mean to be called according to his purpose? He's transitioning here from the encouragement of our helper to the surety of our hope. He begins by stressing the work of God for you in salvation. Notice here, if you will, in this progression, the progression of whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, whom he predestined, those he called, whom he called, these he justified, whom he justified, these he glorified. There's a key word in there that keeps showing up time and time and time again. It's a little two-letter word. He. He. In Paul's progression from foreknowledge to glorification, it is all a work of God. It is God who foreknew you. To foreknow is to know ahead of time. Back in eternity past, God knew you. And not only did he know you, but he predestined you. That's the idea of he took you and he set you aside. This is one that I will save. He set you aside to save. And then in life he called you. He is the one who reached out to you. He is the one who brought you to himself. And then he justified you. In your sins, in Jesus Christ, he declared you to be righteous. And then he is the one who glorified you to bring to completion all of his promises. Brothers and sisters, this verse is a very clear reminder that your salvation, your sanctification, ultimately your glorification are all of God. And that fact gives surety to your hope. It guarantees your hope. There's not one step along the way where God says, you know what, this one I'll let them try on their own. That, that would not be good. And God, in his gracious goodness, he accomplishes it all. In fact, it is in this sure hope that we rejoice Notice two important realities in these, in these verses that gives us sure hope. How do we know that this hope is sure? Well, number one, look, notice that you have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. To be conformed. That is a completed process. It doesn't say those whom he predestined to salvation. Not that he just predestined you to believe and then he left you alone to figure out the sanctification process. He predestined you to the end of the process. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. 
It's a completed process. Glorification. In eternity past, he said, this is one who I will save completely from beginning to end. I will bring him to glorification. Secondly, notice that in Romans 8.30, glorification is discussed of in past tense. As if it has already happened. He, those whom he justified, he also glorified. That might strike you as odd. Well, we just saw in Romans 8.18 through 25 that, that we've not yet been to glory. In fact, we are facing suffering in this life, and we know that to be the fact. And so, did Paul forget what he wrote earlier? No. He's stressing a point here. He's stressing the point that your glorification is guaranteed. It is as if it has already happened. That's how sure it is. Coming up, Jordan, as he was making announcements, mentioned um, faith, graduation, everything is right around the corner. Coming up on the time of year when, when graduation is here. Just recently on Facebook, I was scrolling through and came um, one of uh, a college that I went to had some ads on there about graduates who had already been hired. Seniors who were preparing to graduate who had already gotten jobs lined up or who had already been accepted into graduate study programs. But there's a problem there, right? Because they haven't graduated yet. Graduation is still a few weeks away, and yet this job that they've been hired for requires a degree. This program that they've been allowed to, to, to enter, this postgraduate program, it requires a degree. So how can they already have a job if they do not yet have that degree? Because at this point, it's guaranteed that they're getting that degree. It is as if they already have it. And brothers and sisters, that is the idea here. Our graduation from sanctification to glorification is so sure that it's as if it has already happened. We know suffering and we long for glory, but we rejoice in the surety of our hope. It is guaranteed because God has promised it and he is faithful. And so the surety of your hope should give you boldness. It gives meaning and purpose to faith in the ups and downs of life, you have a sure hope to cling to. A hope that is not tied to your faithfulness, but to God's faithfulness. You will be glorified, so you can be faithful. And that takes us to the end of this passage, verses 31 to 39. A call to persevere through the God who keeps you. God helps you, God saves you, God keeps you. Paul begins this last section of Romans 8 by reminding you of God's love for you. What then shall we say to these things? In light of verses 29 to 30, if, if, if God has done all of this for us, what do we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, furthermore, it's also risen who is even at the right hand of the Father who also makes intercession for us. 
If God has done all of this for you, is there any possibility that he will not finish what he has started? Is there any possibility that the God who has saved you in Christ will not also glorify you as he has promised? The answer here in this passage, as we know, is a resounding no. There is no possibility. There is no possibility that God will fail to do what God has promised. There is no one who can bring a charge against you that might stick. There is no one that can come and say, well, I, I know that you saved him, but, but I saw him lie. His sins have been covered. The judge who would condemn you is the very one who sent his son to die for you. He is the one who chose you in eternity past. He is the God who has saved you. There's no charge that can come against you. What about those who would condemn? Well, that's Jesus Christ, and he's the one who died for you. The only one who could righteously condemn you is the very one who shed his blood for you. He's at the right hand of the Father. He is interceding for you. Notice that word there again, interceding. That's the second time that we've seen that in our passage. We have the Spirit who is groaning inside of us, interceding for us here on earth. And we have the the Son who is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us in glory. Notice that God is fully invested in your salvation. He is all in. It is God who determined to save you, and it is God who has saved you. Not only that, but it is God who sent his own son to die for you. It is God who sent the spirit to indwell you, identifying you as his son and his heir. It is the spirit of God who now indwelling you helps you by praying for you. It is the son of God who having died for you, rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the father, interceding for you, father, son, and Holy Spirit, all are involved in your salvation and glorification. If God is for you, who can be against you? It is obviously clear that God is for you. He is on your side and there is no one who can stand against you. So then what does that mean for us? In verses 35 to 39, since this is true, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Is there anything in heaven, in hell, or in earth that can separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer in these verses is no. There is nothing. There is no one. You are secure in Christ. Knowing that all things work together for good, our glorification, there is nothing that stands as a threat to you in Christ. In this life, you will face suffering of all kinds. But know that that suffering is not a threat to your salvation. The fact that the God who has called you out set his love upon you, that does not guarantee that you will not face suffering. You will face suffering. We've seen that in this passage. But it does guarantee that you will not face condemnation. And in that, we rejoice. No matter what the world throws at you, you, you will triumph overwhelmingly. You are more than a conqueror in Christ because in Christ you are God's and God has set his love upon you. 
Just a few months ago, on February 16, 2022, the Los Angeles Rams celebrated their victory in Super Bowl 56 with a parade through the streets of Los Angeles. The city completely shut down. Hundreds of thousands of people lined the streets. As the players marched and rode all day long through the streets of Los Angeles. Streets that were full of joy. And as these players walked through these streets, do you think they walked through with their heads down? Slumped over? No, they were rejoicing. They walked through those streets with the confidence of a victor. Because they had triumphed. All the ups and downs of the season. All those times in the preseason when they had to run and run and run some more. And then they had to go and lift weights. All the times that their body was aching. It was all worth it as they enjoyed the benefits of victory. They were the champions and no one can take that away from them. And brothers and sisters, this passage is a call for you to live with the confidence of a victor. Because in Christ, you are a victor. You are a champion because in Christ, you are his. There is no threat that your salvation can be stripped away or that your glorification can be delayed or canceled. You are a son of God, an heir of God with Christ, and God will give you all that he has promised you. So as we come to the end of this passage, we sing with confidence. Romans 8 gives purpose and meaning to your suffering. It gives purpose and meaning to life. We go through incredibly painful things. Something like the loss of a spouse is painful beyond understanding. But this passage assures you that it is not meaningless. Even in the deepest of pain, God is at work for your good. In the uncertainty of losing your job, the pain of infertility, the loneliness of singleness, the overwhelming nature of parenting, the struggles of a broken home, the threat of persecution, whatever else that it is that you might be facing, whatever it is that you might be struggling with on the inside, it is not meaningless. And all of this, God is at work in you for your good. Did you hear me? And all of that, whatever it may be, God is at work in you for your good. Do you believe that? And if you do believe that, then what does that look like practically? What does that look like? In all of this, he is molding you. He is moving you toward glorification in all of the ups and downs and the joys and sorrows of life. Because your salvation is sure and your glorification is guaranteed, your life has purpose. So brothers and sisters, rejoice and be faithful. Persevere and sing boldly with confidence. Because in Christ, your salvation, your glorification is guaranteed. And your suffering has purpose. So we sing with confidence.
as we close our service this evening, we are going to sing with confidence. We're going to sing the song, I Have Been Redeemed. One of the reasons I like to, at the end of a service, sing a song that we've already sang in that service is because a lot of the times throughout the week, as, as I'm picking songs, this week Jordan actually picked the songs, but as I'm picking songs, there's a reason why I'm picking it. As I'm studying this passage, there are things in these songs that stand out to me. And so before the service, I'm able to, to sing them with the full knowledge of where we're going. And it's exciting. And I think it adds a little flavor when you are able to then at the end of the service to come back to a song that you sang earlier and now you sing it with a little bit of a new perspective on the things that you've just heard. So this is not a new song. It's a song that we've known for a while. But maybe this evening you're singing it with a little bit of a new perspective. So let's stand together.